0: Chapter 2. A soul may be harmed by the destruction of its belief in its essential spirituality, for this spirituality is its freedom. To undermine a soul's confidence in its spiritual origin is to cast doubt upon the whole meaning of its existence. Any idea that once inserted into the human mind can destroy the soul's faith in its own eternality its divine origin has put into that soul the most unprofitable of all anxieties and fears the fear that perhaps god and truth and eternal life and universal love are mere fictions of a badly put together mechanical brain itself but an accidental falling into temporary relation of a merely material aggregate of atomic particles, senseless and destined at some point in time and space for disintegration. Much has been made by materialists of the statement by Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher, that God is dead but little has been said of the life processes and experiences by which the great philosopher came to formulate this short sentence, the meaning of which, when fully understood, imposes the greater strain on those who accept it. For, as Nietzsche said, if God is dead, it is man's duty to take his place. The man who believes that God is dead or that there is no God, places himself in the position of having to design for himself a life worthy of living. If there were no God, then man himself would have to undertake to make his own life meaningful, to live in such a way that he could bear to stand before the mirror of his mind and say to himself, God is dead Or does not exist, but I exist, so all is well with the world. Such a man would be a rarity beyond grasp, or a conceited fool, or a madman. Nietzsche himself finished his life as a mentally broken man, his balance of mind destroyed, but not by conceit and unintelligent pride. He well knew the colossal magnitude of his statement and was deeply torn by its implications for mankind. As a young man of twenty years of age, he had thanked God for watching over his early process through the world. He had said, To him to whom I owe almost everything do I offer the first fruits of my gratitude. What else can I offer him but the fervent adoration of my heart, which feels more than ever the warmth of his love, the love to which I owe this happiest hour of my existence. May God always have me in his keeping. But Nietzsche, brought up in a Protestant family in the 19th century, believed that there was perfect harmony between a religious faith and an entirely independent science, so that he could search without fear for truth. Holding this belief, the young philosopher-to-be could accept the love of truth as a guiding principle of his whole life. At that time, he could see clearly the direction in which the love of scientific truth would lead him. Gradually, he would found the belief in the harmony of religion and science leaving him. By 1862, the year after his confirmation, he began to think of venturing on the sea of doubt, and from this time came to believe that Christianity rested only on guesswork. Once the young thinker had decided on a course of doubt, he had presented himself with the idea that was finally to lead to his breakdown. It is easy to destroy, but after that, one must build, he wrote. The mind in doubt has no true unity. Once his belief in God had been seen as based on mere guesswork, the problem was raised of what to put in God's place. Nietzsche's answer was fantastically brave. Man himself must take God's place. But the strain of this courageous solution proved too much for his delicate body and fine soul. To retain health, sanity and unity of mind, a human being must have an unshakable central belief. He must have an idea which is unshakable. Armed with this idea, he can face reality and live his life without drowning in the sea of anxiety which threatens to engulf him. What is this unshakable idea? Christ gives us this idea when he tells us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. The word father means generative power. The whole universe around us is a manifestation of power, an expression of an indestructible energy which by its very nature can never cease to be. Energy may change its form, but itself can never be destroyed, never annihilated. Everything in the universe, including our own being, is an expression of power, a play of energy which assumes innumerable forms, mineral, vegetable, animal, human, and superhuman. This power is infinite and indestructible, and mysteriously it is also intelligent. Whatever we think of within our minds as intelligent is but an activity of this power. When we reason, it is this power which reasons in us. When we love, it is this power which loves in us. Fully to realise that this must be so is the first step towards the conquest of anxiety. If the infinite power that is the source of the universe is intelligent, sensitive and capable of love, what is the origin of anxiety and fear? This power which Jesus calls our Father has a will to manifest and a plan. Within this willed plan is a place for mankind, a place for each individual human soul. In order to further this plan, God, our Father, our generative power, has willed freedom for each one of us, for each soul's own will. But freedom involves some degree of separation. We cannot be free to will individually unless we are somehow given space around us in which to move. To give us this space... Our souls must be separated from each other, must be placed in some kind of separate container. These containers are what we call our bodies. By breathing our souls into our separate bodies, our generative power, God, has given us the opportunity of free movement in space. But there is a certain logic resultant of being placed inside a container, inside our bodies. A body has an inside bound by a containing skin, beyond which is space in which other bodies may exist and move. Without such a bounding skin or integument, bodies would not exist. With such a binding skin, Bodies can exist in separativity from each other. But bound by their skins, bodies can move about in space, can contact each other, and may collide, may strike each other. From such a simple fact that separate bodies exist in space and may touch each other, gently or violently, or may be dissolved in space, as when a dead body corrupts after death. From this arises all our anxiety and fear. We may think of what might happen to our bodies under two simple headings. Our bodies might be damaged either by action of something on them from outside or inside, or our bodies might dissolve in space, disintegrate and vanish damage may come from outside either by some form of violence or by invasion of some disease causing germs bacteria or viruses which may enter through a break in the skin or be carried in the air we breathe or in the liquids we drink or the foods we eat Damage may also arise from some failure of our inner processes, the development of faulty action in our organs, causing disease from within. All these possibilities may cause anxiety and fear. But the second possibility that our bodies might dissolve, corrupt, fall apart and vanish away, may also cause anxiety, and not merely because if they do, we shall be dead. There is another, more important cause of this anxiety. When a soul enters into incarnation, into its body, this body serves as a very important center of reference for the soul. Without a body on which to fasten its attention, until it has completed its education, is very unstable, very insecure. This fact is one of the implications of the incarnation of Christ, the deliberate embodiment of the divine power in matter, in a material body on earth. Let us imagine the condition of a soul when it is not tightly fixed on a body. We have some idea of this from our experience during sleep, when we dream. In a bad dream, often nothing seems stable, sure, certain, the images that float through our mind do not have the same sharp edges as the physical bodies we see in our waking state. They are often blurred, indistinct, changeable, confusing and somehow tinged with feeling or emotion. They may bring anxiety with them as a kind of aura or a thin, filmy garment in which the images are dressed or as a fine energy permeating the dream itself. This dream condition into which the soul enters during sleep gives us a good example of the state of the soul when it is not firmly fixed to the physical body. But as long as we live, we can, after dreaming, wake up to the surety of our physical body and to the apparent stability of the material world. Let us now accept that the soul is indestructible in itself, that it is a portion of the divine spirit and so eternal. What would be its condition if it were to be deprived totally of a body to which it could refer for self-assurance Self-stabilization. Its condition would be similar to that in the dream state, but with no possibility of returning to the security of a physical body. Such a soul would experience what we call primary anxiety or original anxiety. Now this original anxiety is the anxiety experienced by the soul when it begins to believe that it may have to stay in a suspended state with no possibility of attaining to a worthwhile incarnation or embodiment. We must notice that there are two kinds of anxiety here. Anxiety that the soul experiences when it feels that it cannot gain incarnation at all, and anxiety that if it does enter into embodiment, that body it enters may somehow be a wrong one, an unfitting one for the attainment of the soul's purpose. In the first case, when the soul feels that it cannot ever gain a body in which to incarnate, its feeling is of an unbearable despair, for it feels that if it could gain a body, it could somehow develop itself and realise the full potential of its being. But it feels also that the gaining of the needed body is impossible. The experience of these two ideas is one of disparity, which is felt psychologically as despair. In the second case the soul is afraid that if it should be able to enter into a body this body might be the wrong one for the soul's development might be such a body that if its whole lifetime was spent in that body then the soul would undergo terrible frustrations of its will which it would have to endure during the whole of its earth life until death released it. Again, the disparity between the two possibilities would produce the feeling of despair. The way out of both these kinds of despair consists in finding a centre of reference for the soul which is not merely physical, not merely material. The key to this is expressed in the words, Christ my anchor, But before we examine this, we will first consider the conditions which the soul needs before it will be able to understand these words. Make their meaning its own and take advantage of them.